That was the bell, and it's time for us to begin our class. Glad you're here today. If you are a guest this morning visiting with us, we're especially happy to have you in our Bible study period this morning and in our worship in just a little bit. We are... um, Happy to have uh, the Adult 3 class in here this morning, but not so happy about the reason that they're here. Uh, Jean Gurley, who teaches that class, is uh, ill today and uh, just kind of came on him suddenly, as I understand it, and uh, not enough time to secure a uh, fill-in for the class, and so they're coming in here, and I'm grateful uh, to see all of you. And uh, Ken Harmon is going to lead us in prayer. He's usually in that class, but we're going to put him to work in this one uh, today. And uh, after Ken leads us in prayer, we'll continue our study today. Ken? Thank you. We are in the midst of a study that uh, we're calling Why We Believe. And um, in that study, we're covering three major areas, why we believe in the existence of God, and we finished that section uh, last Sunday. Uh, Today, we turn our attention to why we believe uh, in the inspiration of the Bible, and we will study that for uh, three or four weeks, I'm not sure exactly how many, and then the latter part of our study this quarter will be why we believe in the deity of Christ, why we believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And uh, those are the three basic components of uh, what's a lot of times referred to as Christian evidences, the evidences that prove the validity of the Christian religion. And those are the three basic fundamental principles. There are others certainly that are involved. Those are the basic fundamental principles of Christian evidences. And um, it's good for us to go over this material uh, quite a bit uh, for our own uh, sake, to bolster and strengthen our own faith in these things, but also to help us uh, in our discussions with others. Uh, Sometimes people wonder why we believe the things that we believe, and they hear things about, uh, for example, the inspiration of the Bible. People will hear things uh, from uh, from skeptics that cause them to doubt whether or not the Bible is inspired. And uh, by studying these things, it helps hopefully to equip us to perhaps answer some of these questions that others may have. So the Bible, of course, has has long been the target of skeptics. There have been people throughout history that have announced uh, the end of its influence, that they have completely destroyed the credibility of the Bible, and therefore, you know, from this point forward, no one's going to believe it. Well, uh, the Bible still stands. It's still here. And um, uh, But the skeptics and the attacks by them have not diminished. If anything, they continue to increase. I want to offer you a few examples of some of the skeptical things that people say about the Scriptures. Here is a quote uh, from a man named Dennis McKenzie. And uh, he wrote this in a book called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy. 
A lot of times you hear about inerrancy. Well, he believes the Bible is full of errors. Here's what he said. Every analyst of the Bible should realize that the book, the Bible, is a veritable miasma. And I had to look that one up. Uh, word that refers to that which is cloudy or hazy. A veritable miasma of contradictions, inconsistencies, inaccuracies, poor science, bad math, inaccurate geography, immoralities, degenerate heroes, false prophecies, boring repetitions, childish superstitions, silly miracles, and dry-as-dust discourse. Well, all righty then. What do you really think there, Dennis? <clears throat> Steve Wells, author of The Skeptic's Annotated Bible, claims that the Bible is unworthy of belief, his words, unworthy of belief, because of its many errors. Uh, Dan Barker wrote, People who are free of theological bias notice that the Bible contains hundreds of discrepancies. The Bible is a flawed book. Barker is, um, at least at one time, I suspect he still is, the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Uh, actually, the son of a uh, Methodist minister, but a full-blown uh, skeptic. Well, and those are just a couple of examples. Uh, and, and you see this all over the place these days. So, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we to do with all of that? How are we to deal with those kinds of attacks on Scripture? Is our best effort in responding to these kinds of attacks confined to simply asking people to believe that the Bible is inspired and inerrant without having adequate evidence to support that claim? In other words, is the best that we can do to go to people and say, well, I want you to believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but you're just going to have to take my word for it. Or, is there evidence that leads to the conclusion that the Bible is inspired? Does the evidence demand the conclusion that the Bible has come from God? I believe that is exactly what the evidence proves. We're going to look at different um, examples of that evidence over the next few weeks. But first of all, we've got to make sure we understand our terms. When we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, we need to make sure we understand what we mean by that and understand sometimes what others mean by that. It's really not sufficient much anymore to simply say, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And the reason why I say that's not enough is because the term inspiration has in many, in many areas been redefined. And so somebody may claim, yes, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but by that statement, they don't mean what the Bible means by that term. Let me give you an example. The definition of inspiration... In English, is a broader thing than how the Bible uses that term. Now, I don't, I don't blame our dictionaries for that because uh, English dictionaries, their purpose is to um, 
define words as they are used in the current culture and, and you know, usage of the term. Uh, it's problematic because the English word for inspiration is broader than the biblical term for it. And so we have to be more uh, specific sometimes in our definition. But the primary meaning, even in English still, is uh, the action or power... Uh, excuse me. The primary definition is still referencing divine communication. However, one of the definitions in Webster's reads this way, the action or power of moving the intellect or emotions. Okay, so somebody can refer to a, a passage of Scripture or a passage of something else. Somebody may read a poem by Edgar A. Guest or, or Henry Van Dyke or somebody like that, and they read that and they say, wow, that is inspired. And what they mean by that is it's very emotionally moving. It's very deep uh, or, uh, or, or something like that. But just because something is emotionally moving doesn't fit the definition of inspiration as the Bible uses that term. We use it that way in English, but the biblical term is confined to something that is more than just human genius or, or something that can stir the emotions. To say that the Bible is inspired in the biblical sense of that word is basically to say that God is the ultimate source of the words contained in that book. That the Bible is God's verbal communication to mankind. Now, with regard to inspiration, I believe the Bible teaches um, that it is verbally inspired and that it is inspired in its fullness. In other words, that all of the Bible is inspired, not just parts of it, and that the inspiration was done on a verbal level. In other words, the words themselves are inspired. And we'll talk more about that in a moment and give you some passages that, that show that. But I like this definition. It's kind of an expanded definition, but I think this is a great way to explain inspiration from a biblical perspective. The original documents of the Bible. This is inspiration. The original documents of the Bible were written by men who, though permitted the exercise of their own personalities and literary talents, yet wrote under the control and guidance of the Spirit of God the result being, in every word of the original documents, a perfect and errorless recording of the exact message which God desired to give to man. I think that is... I, I haven't found a better explanation of what we mean, what the Bible means, by the term inspiration. Alright, so it's a verbal record completely accurate and errorless verbal record of what God intended to convey verbally through the writers that He employed for that purpose. Alright, now let's look at some passages in Scripture that bear that out, that, that the inspiration of the Bible is indeed verbal. How about 2 Timothy 3, verse 16? All Scripture 
is given by the inspiration of God. That, that whole phrase, given by the inspiration of God, really translates a word, literally, God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And he goes on to say you know, that it's profitable for these various things, doctrine, reproof, correction, and so forth. I want us to focus on that first part. All Scripture is God-breathed, given by the inspiration of God. All right, so when you look at that passage, Paul identifies that something in that text is God-breathed. That something is Scripture, right? It comes from uh, the Greek word graphe, where we get English words graphic, graph, right? What is an autograph? Auto, self, graph, right. Self to write. So when you sign your name, you're, sign, you're, you're writing your own name, it's an autograph. So graph comes from that which is written. And that's what it means in, in its literal term. It, it refers to that which is written. Well, what do we write? Words. Correct? That's what, you know, when we communicate in writing, we're writing words. And so Paul is saying, all Scripture, that which is written, is inspired of God. But we write words, so the words are inspired. The reason why we bring that up is some people will say, in, in trying to define inspiration, well, God inspired the, the thoughts and the ideas, but not necessarily the words that were written. And so uh, the writers themselves would take these nebulous thoughts and concepts, and, uh, and then they would just simply write them down. And so some of the general ideas in back of the words came from God, but you can't really you know, pinpoint the words themselves and say that those came from God. Now, here's the implication of that. If that's true, then... And this is what some on that loose side of inspiration would say. You can't then go to a particular word in Scripture and make any kind of authoritative argument based on that. So just because, for example, uh, in passages where the word uh, immersion is used, you can't really you know, hang your hat on that being immersion to the exclusion of, of other forms of baptism. Because it was just the concept, it was just the idea of some kind of a washing, and, and just the simple fact that that word was used is immaterial. Right? That's the way they would argue that. And so you can't make arguments based on words. However, if the words themselves were inspired, then the words make a difference. Right? They mean something. And I'll show you a couple of examples in just a minute where Jesus... Um, indicated his belief in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. In other words, see, Jesus is going to make arguments based upon words. And not just that, tenses of words, things of that nature. All right? Some other examples about the verbal inspiration. Exodus 17, 14. The Lord said to Moses, all right, so, well, if you say something, what are you saying? Words. The Lord said to Moses, 
write this as a memorial in a book. <clears throat> well, if, if God told Moses to write something, what was he telling Moses to write? Words. And Moses was writing what the Lord said. So the words that Moses wrote were the words that God chose. Make sense? 2 Samuel 23, 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. That's David speaking. Not his nebulous thoughts, but his word. How about Jeremiah 1, verse 9? Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So when Jeremiah spoke, whose words was he speaking? Well, God's. Right? Luke 21, verse 14. Jesus told his disciples in, in telling them that, you know, in the future when they were going to stand before uh, authoritative figures, authority figures and others and be brought before councils and, and all to be put on trial. He said, do not meditate beforehand how to answer. Because in that moment, in that hour, they would be given the words that they were to speak. All right, now that was a promise to the twelve, to inspired apostles. It's not a promise intended for every person uh, from that point to eternity. But his point was to them, I'm going to give you words. Paul made several statements uh, about uh, this, this thing, indicating his awareness that the things that he wrote were ultimately not his words, but God's. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. He's introducing his uh, statements regarding the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so he and, and then he begins to, to, to write that. That the Lord Jesus, the night of which he was betrayed, took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it, all that. Well, whose words were those? Well, Paul said they were the Lord's. What I delivered to you, I received from the Lord. How about uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15? This we declare to you by the word of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as... It is, in truth, the Word of God, which effectively works in you that believe. So when Paul referenced his writings and his speaking to people, he was very clear in saying, look, these are not just my words. These are words that are coming ultimately from God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, I don't think that's on the... Uh, the paper there, but it, there Paul said, if any of, if any of you think to, that, that you're wise, paraphrase, he said, let him know that the words I speak are the words of the Lord. So all over Paul's writings, he makes that claim, that his words are the words of God. Now, I've kind of gone through those passages rather quickly. I want to 
look a little more closely at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, we'll get a little context here. You go back to verse uh, uh, 6. Paul talks about how that, that he, and I believe in, in the broader context, not just him personally, but other apostles, inspired writers, we do impart wisdom, but not a wisdom of this age or world or the rulers of this world are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. All right, so Paul is talking about individuals who are speaking by inspiration. And he said, here's what we deliver. We're delivering a hidden wisdom. It's hidden because God didn't reveal it specifically to everybody. He revealed it to those that he intended to take the message and speak it to others. And so it, for that reason, it's hidden. But... As, as Paul and other inspired writers speak it, it becomes no more hidden but revealed. All right, so that's what we're imparting. Now, look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is saying if, if people had, had fully understood what God was doing in in laying out and bringing to fruition His plan for the redemption of man. These hidden things that, that inspired individuals were now revealing. He said if, if, if the rulers had understood all of that, they would not have complied with God's plan for things. But as it is written, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. I don't believe, though I have taught this in the past, verse 9, uh, I, I don't believe that Paul there is talking about uh, heaven. I've used that passage in the past to, to make that point, and I'm not so sure that's what he's talking about there. Um, you know, I, we, we cannot imagine, you know, what God has prepared for us in heaven. Well, that may be true, and I believe it is true in a lot of respects. I just don't think that's what that passage is specifically talking about. I think Paul's talking about God's plan for the redemption of man. Uh, that, that the rulers in verse 8 didn't understand. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord. But this is something that eye had not seen, ear has not heard. In other words, man could not have come up with this plan if he tried. It's, it's, too, it's, it's, it's too great for the human mind to have come up with on its own. And so eye hasn't seen it, ear hasn't heard it, it hasn't even entered into the imagination of man, all of these things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, heaven's a part of that as the culmination of that plan. But I don't think heaven is the exclusive thing that he's referencing in verse 9. I think it's the entire plan of God's, redemption, God's redemptive plan for all of mankind that culminates in heaven. So that whole plan, Paul says, individuals, human beings on their own could not have come up with that. But... These things about His plan for redemption, 
God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So we didn't come up with all this on our own. We didn't come up with any of it on our own. God revealed those things to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths, the deep things of God. The reason why, in other words, the reason why the Spirit could reveal those two inspired men was because the Spirit knows the mind of God. For who knows, verse 11, who knows a person's thoughts? Who knows the mind of man except the Spirit of that man which is in him? Right? We understand that principle, right? You don't know what's in my mind unless I, with words, reveal the contents of my mind. True? If I were to say to Shorty, Shorty, what am I thinking right now? He has no idea. To let you know, chicken fried steak. Okay, just, right? But he didn't know that. Nobody knows what another person's thinking except the spirit of that person. Unless that person decides to reveal what's in his mind through the use of words. Everybody got that? So also, end of verse 11. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So there's no way for us to know what's in the mind of God unless God reveals His mind by communicating that to us in words. Verse 12, Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God. Right? Inspired apostles, here's what we've received. We have received the Spirit of God. To what end? Verse 12, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We've received the Spirit of God to understand the mind of God. 13, and we impart this in words, notice, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Not in words of human wisdom. but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual or combining spiritual things with spiritual words, one translation. Combining spiritual things with spiritual. So Paul's point there is, there are certain things, go back to verse 9, there are certain things that God prepared for those who love Him. But as long as God chose not to reveal those things, then there was no way for anybody to know what they were. Because nobody knows the mind of another except the spirit of that person. And nobody knows the mind of God but the spirit of God. So God had those things in His mind from times eternal. But if God wanted for human beings to know what was in His mind about those things that He has prepared for those who love Him. If He wants those people who love Him to know what He's prepared for them, how's He going to communicate that to them? Well, it's going to have to be through words. Somehow, through words. And so Paul said, this is how God chose to communicate those words. The Spirit of God, who knows the mind of God, communicated the thoughts of God to the apostles in words He chose... And then we wrote down the words that He gave us. And so we combined the spiritual things that were in the mind of God with spiritual words given to us by the Spirit and communicated them 
to you. That's how you know what's in the mind of God. Does that make sense? Same thing happens explained in different words in Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 5. Referencing the same topic, God's plan for the redemption of man. And he said, by revelation, Ephesians 3, beginning verse 3, how that by revelation, God made known to me the mystery, which I wrote before in few words, whereby when you read you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it has now been revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. To wit, in other words, here's, here's the content of that message, that the Gentiles are to be included, to be fellow heirs. Right? So all of that, basically Paul says, look, God made known to me by revelation. God revealed it to me. God made known to me by revelation the mystery. Things hidden in ages past. Okay, but they're not going to remain hidden because Paul said God revealed those to me by revelation. And he said, and I wrote about them in words. But then notice what he says. Whereby, when you read, when you read what I wrote, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. What God revealed to me by revelation, you can understand too. It's just not by the same process. God revealed it to me directly. In order for you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ, you have to read what I wrote. And when you do that, you can perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ, which wasn't made known in ages past, but now it has been revealed through His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now you put Ephesians 3, 3 to 5 with 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 13, and you can have a, a full picture of what inspiration really is. It is God's verbal communication of His will to mankind through the use of inspired human writers. All right? Everybody with me? Now. Yes. <clears throat> Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a great point. If you didn't catch that, Alan was saying that that one of the great difficulties of this the whole idea inspiration versus verbal inspiration is uh, it basically ends up making the words of Scripture meaningless. Because, because then the debate becomes, well, what, did the, what was the writer's intention? What was the idea in back of his words that he was trying to express, but probably didn't express accurately? Well, the only way we're going to find out what his idea was, was by looking at his words. And, but if the words themselves were not inspired, then basically you're left with, well, I think he meant this. Well, I think he meant that. And who's to say? Who's, who's right? And so it, it leads to a very subjective approach to Scripture 
And it, it hinders the ability for people to come to the unity of the faith, Ephesians 4. Uh, and so it, it's a whole, and, and it, it certainly makes sense for God to have verbally inspired the Scriptures because now it becomes more of, all right, if we can grasp what the words mean, then we know what the thought is. But if the words are not inspired, then we're pretty much left with our own subjective opinions. All right? So that's a great point. All right. Now, let's look at a couple of examples of um, how both Jesus and Paul used the Scriptures in a way that shows that those Scriptures were verbally inspired. First one's in Matthew 22. <clears throat> Matthew 22. This is, um, this is where Jesus encountered the Sadducees, and they come up to Him with a, a hypothetical situation that they think is going to put Him in some kind of a, a theological trap. Because the Sadducees had as one of their core beliefs that there was no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. just didn't happen. Didn't happen, doesn't happen, won't happen. No resurrection. And so they come to Jesus with that as a part of their theological framework. And they give Him this hypothetical, starting in verse 23 of Matthew 22. Sadducees came to Him who say there's no resurrection... And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now in that, they were correct. law of Moses did stipulate that. The Leverett Law, Leviticus 25, I think. All right, so they, they, they preface it with a statement of truth. Moses said that. True. Now, here's their argument. Now, there, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. So there's the hypothetical. We had seven brothers, and this wife of the first brother, she basically outlived seven husbands, in accordance with how the law of Moses stipulated that that was to be handled. Now, they say in verse 28, now, in the resurrection, you can almost, you know, sense the... the uh, the sarcasm dripping from their words because they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, uh, in the resurrection, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So they think that with this hypothetical situation that that automatically proves there can't be a resurrection of the dead because who's this woman going to be married to in the resurrection? She's had seven husbands in this life, outlived them all, who gets to claim her in the resurrection? All right. The Lord's response is, verse 29, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So He just basically says, look, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the Scriptures, neither do you know the power of God. Look at verse 34. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. We're like the angels in heaven. In other words, you made a mistake in thinking that that woman would be anyone's wife in the resurrection. Marriage, as we know it in this life, does not exist in the next. Okay? 
recognition does, and you know, we don't have time to go into that, but you know, I believe there is clearly recognition and relationship, but those relationships are not going to be the same as they are here. So he says, because you think that she'll be anybody's wife in the resurrection proves that you don't understand the facts of the matter. Then, having dismissed, with, with just a very few words, he dismisses with their whole hypothetical, then he gets to the heart of the matter, 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, he knew what they were doing. He knew they were trying to trap him in some kind of a box that he couldn't get out of that was going to prove him wrong in his belief that there is a resurrection. So now he's going to deal with that. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Now that was a stinging rebuke in itself. Haven't you read? Do you even know what the law says? Have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he quotes Exodus 3, verse 6. I think in the notes I may have a reference to Exodus 3, 14. If you're looking at that, that's a, a, I put the wrong verse there. It's Exodus 3, verse 6. For he quotes that, and here's the quote. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's the quote. And then Jesus adds this statement. God is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. All right. What does he mean by that? How does Exodus 3, 6 prove that there's a resurrection of the dead? How does Exodus 3, 6 condemn the Sadducees' doctrine that there's no resurrection? Jesus is basing his argument on the tense of the verb in Exodus 3, 6. Now, that's an argument for verbal inspiration. Here's what his argument is. He says, haven't you read what Moses wrote? And isn't it interesting that he says what Moses wrote to you? You go back and read Exodus 3, 6, and those were God's words to Moses through the burning bush. Jesus said God spoke those words to you, you Sadducees of the first century. Which is proof, incidentally, that the Bible was intended to have an audience beyond its original audience. That's why the Bible is applicable even today. But here's his point. God spoke these words to Moses at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. At the time God spoke those words to Moses, from a physical perspective, where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Dead and buried. They'd been dead for centuries. Now, if there were no resurrection of the dead, in other words, if individuals did not last beyond the death of their bodies, then it would have been proper for God to have said to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't exist anymore. They've been dead and gone for a long, long time. But he doesn't say, I was. He said, I am. Present tense. So... And this is the point that Jesus is making. Had the Sadducees properly understood the implications of Exodus 3.6, then they would have reached the proper conclusion that there must be life after this physical existence. Because God said in the days of Moses, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They must be in existence in some capacity. They must still be around. They are. Not in the flesh. But their souls, their spirits, live on. So what does that imply? 
there's life after this existence. Isn't that an amazing way that Jesus, in just short fashion, demolished their whole doctrine, and He did it by appealing to the Scriptures that they claimed to believe in. And He said, if you had read, had you, have you not read? The implication being, have you not read and properly understood the implications of God's statement to Moses in Exodus 3.6? If you had, then you wouldn't end up with this false doctrine of no resurrection. But notice again, now let's bring it back to inspiration. If Moses, who wrote the book of Exodus, was not being guided in his writing, if he had only been given nebulous ideas, whatever, then you couldn't make an argument based on the specific word he used. But if the words themselves are inspired, ultimately chosen by God, then you can make a case on a word. This was the word God chose. And that's the point Jesus is making. God chose the present tense. And that's important. Because using the present tense long after those individuals were dead indicates that they were still alive. Not physically. Their spirits were. Which implies that there's life beyond this physical existence. So it's an argument based on not just a word, but the tense of the verb. The form of the word. That's verbal inspiration, folks. Paul does the same thing, similar thing, Galatians 3.16. When he quotes Genesis 22.18, look at Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, his seed. It does not say, and to seeds as of many, but and to your seed, singular, which is one, that seed being Christ. So Paul goes back and says, you go back and read Genesis 22, 18. And you'll notice that God did not use a plural noun, seeds. He didn't say that this promise is for your seeds, plural. He said this promise is in reference to your seed, singular. That sound like verbal inspiration to you? In other words, God used the singular for a reason. And that's why that word is there, because God intended for it to be there to make a point. That the reference is to Christ, a singular seed or offspring. All right. So verbal inspiration. Uh, a couple of minutes. Now, um, rough. All right, here we go. Now, if that's the case, if, if inspiration applies only to the original autographs, the original actual documents, then how can we be certain that what we have, which are not the original documents, are reliable? We're going to have an entire class on that in a few weeks. But let me just offer you this as one example. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Paul said to Timothy, from a babe, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. All right? But those Holy Scriptures from, that Timothy had known from his youth were copies of the original manuscripts. Timothy didn't have the originals. 
he had copies of who knows how many generations. But they had been preserved so well through the centuries that Paul could not only refer to them as still the Word of God, but he also indicates that their purpose or their power, their original design, had not been hampered. The Scriptures that Timothy had studied from were still able to make him wise unto salvation, even though they were multi-generational copies of the originals. So, just because we don't have the original autographs does not automatically mean that the message itself has been tainted through the copying and translation process. And that one passage indicates that. All right? Now, just kind of file that one away because we're going to have a whole class on, on that principle a little bit later. And we'll talk about more of uh, how this translation process and, and the amount of manuscript evidence that we have uh, is... is more than sufficient evidence to prove that the manuscripts, the Bibles that we have today are an accurate representation of the, um, the original documents. All right? So file that away. Okay. A lot of information today. I know. Uh, chew on that. And uh, we'll continue, Lord willing, next week. Thank you much. Yes, Stan. Please.